Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey gang, CK and I have a great guest this week. Coming from Marin County, California, we have a special treat today. We have a vegetarian that raises cattle, an environmental lawyer and a best-selling author, Nicolette Han Nyman. And I want to apologize in advance, Nicolette's audio dropped out a couple times. Here we go. So Nicolette, thanks for uh, joining us today. Appreciate the appreciate you being here. Sorry about the scheduling difficulties. Um, it's all right. So I have listened to your uh, your last book, Defending Beef, and you've updated it a little bit, yes? Yes, quite a bit. Okay. We want to talk about some of those changes and uh, and some of the new, new knowledge that you've thrown in there because I haven't had a chance to read the new version yet. So for our, our listeners that probably aren't familiar with your story, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're at, and uh, how you got to be where you are. Okay, sure. Well, I live on a, a ranch in Northern California. We're in uh, Marin County, so it's a little bit north of San Francisco mm-hmm. and right on the Pacific Ocean. Um, we live in that kind of climate where it's, uh, I mean, there's only, I, I've been told there are five of them in the world where it's a Mediterranean climate where it's just uh, basically dry during the summer and fall, and then it rains during the winter, and then it stops raining in about April, and then there's absolutely no precipitation until late fall again. So it's a kind of a unique climate in that regard. And um, we we have a ranch that's uh, totally grass-based. We have cattle that are grass-grown and finished here that we, that we um, raise. And then we also normally, right at the moment, we don't have them on the ranch, but normally we have heritage turkeys that are also outdoor-raised. And we have had a few other types of animals over the recent in the recent past, including um, goats, but we don't have those right now either. So we're we're always trying to have um, more diversity in terms of what we're doing. But when we did the goats, we found that we were just overwhelmed <laughs> because my husband always does all of the um, he takes charge of everything. So slaughtering marketing delivery uh yeah we don't sell you know live animals we we sell the meat directly to the end user so it was when we um started having um goats on the ranch we loved having that species diversity but then we realized we had to have a whole new business that we created with finding the right slaughterhouse finding the right uh distribution people finding the right customers and so anyway we're um we're really interested in as much diversity as possible but right now we're um we're just doing the cattle and the turkeys great and uh a little more about my background too um so i was um i'm originally from the midwest i'm from michigan and i was one of those kids that grew up out in nature 
spent mm-hmm. a lot of time outdoors, majored in biology in college. I was always interested in the natural world and environmental issues and just, you know, wanted to be part of um kind of being a good environmentalist my whole life. And when I was in college um, majoring in biology, I decided to stop eating meat. So I became a vegetarian at that time. And years later, I went to law school, became a lawyer, and then I ended up becoming an environmental lawyer after Mm -hmm. um, practicing for a while as a prosecuting attorney and then as a um, working in a law firm. And um, started working on environmental uh, causes for National Wildlife Federation and then was hired by Bobby Kennedy Jr. to be the senior attorney for the group Waterkeeper Alliance, which is based in New York and it's totally focused on water pollution issues. So um, I did that for two years and during that whole time I was focused um, on the question of pollution from the meat industry. So I really sort of became a specialist in that issue. And during that work, I met a lot of really good farmers and ranchers that were doing really a really good job of stewarding their animals and their land. And that's how I met Bill Nyman, who's the founder of the Nyman Ranch Meat um, Organization. And I ended up marrying him and moving to California. So I got into ranching the very old fashioned way of through marriage. And um, initially didn't think I would probably be directly involved in the ranch because I was, you know, planning on continuing my career as an environmental lawyer, but I um, moved to our ranch and got super interested in what we were doing and um, just did a little bit more, you know, work here and there on the ranch and then more and more and pretty soon I was doing it full time. So I did it um, full time for about seven years and then we had two boys and a lot of my time got diverted <laughs> towards them. And I started writing books and I've written um, the book I just have coming out now, Defending Beef, is the third book I've written. So I wrote a book called Righteous Pork Chop, which was all about kind of describing the industrialization of the meat industry and how that happened and what the implications for that are. And then I wrote the book Defending Beef six years ago. And then I um, was asked by the publisher to update it. And I was happy to do that because I was really um, convinced that the the issues I wrote about are more timely than ever. Okay. But when I started, I thought I could do it in a couple months. And then I started writing it, rewriting it, and I started going page by page and I realized, wow, there's a lot I want to redo. So I ended up taking about a year to rewrite it and it just came out a few days ago. So brand new um, version of Defending Beef and we've changed the subtitle, which I like. I really like the subtitle now. It's the ecological and nutritional case for meat. And that's really what the book is. So that's kind of my background. Um, I spend most of my time nowadays just taking care of our household um, and raising our sons, but I'm also still really involved in advocacy around ranching and then I help out on a ranch and, you know, whenever I have an opportunity to talk to people and, you know, I get invited to speak at classrooms and, and other groups and I, I like um, sharing this message about uh, the importance of animals in the food system, but also the importance of doing it well. And I couldn't agree more. Now, the fun part is, is figuring out where to stick that, stick that lever in and start the conversation. Um, like I said, I, I have listened to uh, the previous version of Defending Beef on audiobook and got a trip coming up here in a few days, so I'm going to make sure oh, I've good. got the new version downloaded. Um, you know, the environmental implications of meat, you know, even over the last, you said you've been working on it for the last year, and it seems like over the last year, every week something new was coming out. There was a new, a, a new article in mass media or a new study that we'd find out about about 
you know, a link between microbiome and this, or a link between soil biology and this, uh, or a link between, you know, soil health and animal health and human health. What- yeah. Yeah, well, I thought um, that that last question that you just mentioned is something I thought the book, um, The Hidden Half of Nature by um, David Montgomery and his wife, Anne Bilkey, wrote so beautifully about in that in their book. And that's one of the many books that I've read since the original version of the book came out. And all of that has influenced the way that I've rewritten the book. But I would agree. I think the topic is really timely right now. And so I, um, in revising the book, I included new, a lot of new research about um, carbon sequestration and soil biology. And I added a great deal more on the climate change topic because I addressed it pretty thoroughly in the first version of the book. But I found that that seems to be the thing that people that are not eating meat or are reducing their meat are really focused on. They're really um, convinced that, you know, eating meat is bad for climate change. So I just wanted to really directly address that issue. They've got it totally backwards, don't they? Oh, yeah, because, I mean... This is, I love this phrase. I just say this over and over again. It's not the cow, it's the how. So yes, you can do things badly anywhere in agriculture and cause a lot of environmental problems. That's what my whole, you know, work has been all about. That's what my writing is about. That's what my work as an environmental lawyer was about. But on the flip side of that, if you raise animals well, if they're well cared for and the land is well cared for, you're not just going to be not harming the environment. You're going to be providing a tremendous number of lots of different types of environmental services to whatever ecosystem you're in. And the thing that I didn't really understand that well until I started researching the original book is that probably the most important thing you're going to be doing is helping the soil biology. So not just, um, you know, I knew I had been aware that you could have better Uh, water holding capacity in the soil where you have more active soil biology. That's a really important part of it. But I learned a lot more about the sort of on the microscopic level, how this all works. And they're actually, you know, there's this whole, you know, subterranean uh, ecosystem that's down there underground. And wherever you have the presence of animals, and especially well-managed grazing animals, you have a kind of a charging of that, a supercharging of that below ground uh, you know, microscopic biology that's happening. And the every plant that's in that system is going to benefit from the presence of those animals because their, um, their, uh, their grazing is going to prune the vegetation, which not only stimulates growth of that plant, but it also allows other more diverse, you know, it allows more diversity because other plants have more opportunity to sprout when that original plant that the animal was grazing on gets grazed. And then you have um, a whole process that gets triggered in terms of um, what's happening when the plant takes basically the carbon through photosynthesis, takes carbon from the the process of photosynthesis from the atmosphere and Mm -hmm. and powered by the sun, and then puts uh, carbon and other substances into the soil. And um, the roots are an incredibly important part of that story, and they are making exchanges with the soil, and the plant is getting what it needs for its growth, and the plant is also giving in exchange. Uh, it's giving carbon to the soil, and then the carbon can stay in the soil and 
just basically powers the whole life of the whole system. And all of these um, exchanges are happening on the microscopic level. And it's now been shown that this is all of this is necessary for a healthy um, soil, which has then mm-hmm. the foundation for diverse vegetation and above ground life. Everything from you know insects to elephants benefit from having that um, active and really diverse mm-hmm. soil life. And the fascinating thing is that people have um, you know for decades kind of assumed that cattle and other grazing animals were damaging. Uh, ecosystems, but more and more evidence from around the world is showing, you know, really good anecdotal evidence as well as very carefully done peer-reviewed science is showing, um, by mostly by rangeland scientists around the world, is showing that if you remove the grazing animals from an ecosystem, oh, yeah. you will actually lower the diversity of this um, of the whole system. The the the, the, the microbiome of the soil will be um, less diverse and less uh, active. And then you'll have a much less diverse vegetation and you'll have less vegetation. So which leads to less wildlife and more less game um, alive ecosystem from the ground up. You know, and and that leads to less wildlife and less game. And then it's, it's kind of like a descending spiral. Once we take cows off the land that are ruminant ruminants off the land, it's just a descending spiral of biology back to, Back to, well, it's from soil to dirt. Yes, exactly. <laughs> because the, that distinction between dirt and soil is a really important one. A dirt is basically lifeless, and it's kind of broken down pieces of rock, whereas soil is full of life. And it's a, it's not just the microorganisms I've been talking about, but all kinds of other things, you know, earthworms and um, beetles and all kinds of other insects. And I really appreciate the work of um, Dr. Jonathan Lundgren, who's an entomologist and former scientist at USDA. And he talks a lot about the loss of um, so many insect species and, and just the presence of insects. We've had this massive kind of die off the world over because he says, really, we need these insects for healthy ecosystems. And he's really focused on um, good farming systems, really um, benefiting from the presence of this diverse um, insect life and how, again, when you have good grazing systems, those actually foster lots of diversity and lots of different kinds of insects, and they balance each other out. So he always says when there's one insect that's considered a pest, that overabundance means you're, the system is out of balance. And just treating that, that symptom of your out-of-balance system with a poison is, 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 is a never, it's a never-ending battle. And so what, you know, what I'm interested in, my whole focus has become, you know, and I would say, you know, between the first book that I wrote, Defending Beef, and now it's even more so for me, it's been amplified by so much I've learned and read, is for me, the focus is how do we create um, farming and ranching systems that are based on this idea that we foster that biological health, that we, that we learn to understand nature, and how do we foster this? And then when we do that, we address so many of the problems that you know we worry about in agriculture. We we address um, drought. We address. I mean, not that we can completely solve it, but you know. But for what we can do on our land and help you know the the systems that we're working with and their sustainability, um, when you address things on this biological level, 
Um, you're going to make more water retained in your soil. You're going to make a more diverse soil biology. You're going to make fewer, you know, you're going to reduce the problems that you have with any kind of overabundance of any plant or any insect. You're going to have a balanced system. And, and then when you have that kind of a system, you create a healthier food. You create a healthier animal if you're raising animals. Yeah. And then their food, whether it's milk or meat, is going to be healthier too. So it's just like the whole system is much healthier, and then the people living and working there are healthier too. So it's, it's just a, it's a whole different way of doing farming and ranching than I think, you know, the dominant model has been for a long time. You know, and I, at the heart of it, we're talking about like the difference between a regenerative grass-fed system and the current commodity crop and CAFO system. Of protein production. And just so we're clear, the chicken and the pork and the turkey uh, industries, they have the same problem that we do about, mm-hmm. you know, how do – and we all really have the same mission, okay? And the mission is to produce high-quality, good protein. So what are mm-hmm. what are some of the differences you've uncovered about an animal that, you know – eats a eats a more of a commodity diet you know whether it's a commodity hay that's grown with pesticides and synthetic fertilizers versus an all-natural grass type animal well i have to say first of all i think the core for any healthy agricultural system with animals is to focus on what does that animal's biology require what does their physiology require and just fundamental to that you know i just always think about you know the analogy with children and how you raise, especially now that i have kids you know how you raise them well the first thing my parents said every single day is get outside (laughs) you know like they wanted us out of the house you know but they just wanted us to be moving our bodies and be out in the fresh air be out in the sunshine and move and get movement you know And that I think is absolutely essential for healthy animals as well. So it's not as much of an issue with ranching. I mean, pretty much when you're ranching, that's what the animals are already doing. But when you're talking about pigs and poultry, that is in my mind, the fundamental problem with most of the modern systems is that the animals are put in an unhealthy environment. You know, So the first thing is what is this animal designed to do? And when you have um, poultry and pigs, those are omnivorous animals, obviously. They need to have a diverse diet and they need to be breathing fresh air and foraging and moving around you know and when you have grazing animals you know those are pretty much mostly outside except for dairy cattle which right they they do need to be outside in my view as much as possible but um grazing animals i think um should not just be out and foraging as much as possible but also um here's something that I hadn't really thought that much about. Again, um, sort of the reading I've been doing over the last five years that's influenced the new book. Um, The new book has been quite influenced by the book um, Nourishment by Dr. Fred Provenza, who's an expert on animal nutrition. And he's, you know, his book Nourishment, he's been working for decades on this, but I hadn't read anything that he'd written until I read that book. And I was just blown away by it because, you know, he shows all this research about how animals are able to self-select for what their bodies need Need, on any given day. And the most fascinating part of that book, and he, of course, analogizes this and take it further to the human diet, but even just focusing totally on what he says about the animal diet, he says that essentially all the studies that he's done about ruminant nutrition and how how animals will graze is that um, 
an animal will actually seek out um, what it needs on that given day. And if you test their blood in the morning and you see that it's lacking, let's say in calcium, you will, um, and you follow them around and they have grad students doing this, you know, <laughs> like literally with clipboards, writing down what they're eating. And they'll show, they've been able to show that that animal will seek out plants that are known to contain high levels of calcium. And that by the end of the day, that um, shortage will generally be remedied by if the animal has the opportunity to select it. So he really, um, makes a very powerful case for the need for a diverse pasture and rangeland. And so again, you know, it's not just about um, the importance of, I think uh, having animals outdoors and having them have fresh air and sunshine and exercise is absolutely fundamental, but there's also that whole question of, well, what are they grazing on and how much diversity do they have an opportunity to graze on? And, and then of course, um, you know, I, I really agree with, Alan Savory and others that are arguing that how you graze is absolutely critical as far as, you know, the timing and the movements of the animals. But, um, but just going back to your question, Brian, I think there's really good scientific evidence showing that there's a tremendous value for the animals to have opportunity to have diverse, um, that they can access diverse plants every day. And, um, so that goes back to that whole question of um, how diverse is your soil and how diverse are the microorganisms and other organisms in your soil and how much biology do you have happening in your soils? And then that affects everything in terms of how much diversity you have in your plant life on your rangelands or pastures. And then that allows the animals to self-select what they need nutritionally. And even uh, Dr. Provenza's work even shows that they will self-medicate if they begin to have a medical issue or if they have some kind of illness, they will seek out things that will help their, you know, their physical problems. So um, there's a lot there. You know, it's a really interesting field. And this is another area where I think um, there's more and more new research coming out to bolster these kinds of ideas. Yeah, that makes me think about grazing pressure. Like, do we need to kind of not be so hard on pushing them to 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 not be selective? Well, I think if you're moving them um, regularly and mm -hmm. you're, um, you know, you're timing their movements properly, you're reading your pasture at right. your rangeland, whatever it is, and um, and you're paying attention to what's happening with the grazing. Um, I think for the most part, your system's going to work, you know? Okay. Um, and I think, you know, the other thing about all of this is that everything is so site specific. You mm -hmm. know, I think anytime anybody has the answer, <laughs> it's probably wrong because everything is so specific to your particular operation. Mm -hmm. And I know on our place, we're always discussing every, you know, year and every week what we're doing and whether we should be doing this or that, you know, mm -hmm. so, um, but I think having a management, you know, um, of the grazing is the key, you know, making sure that um, you're, um, you're paying attention to what's happening and that you're um, trying to read the impact of what you're doing and then you're responding, you know, there's that management issue. Right. So this morning, we went out and uh, moved cows this morning, turned them into a new, I think, like 66-acre paddock. And we drove through the paddock that we were moving into on the way in because that's, you know, one of Bob's tricks. Anyway, so we got them moved, and 
we got them all out of the old pasture, rode down to the creek, just took a little quick check, made sure we had them all, went up, closed the gate, and then went back out the way we came. And standing there by the gate that we came in, there was 12 head, and they were just mowing down some clover. I mean, they were just going to town on it. So mm-hmm. I thought, okay, I've got my refractometer with me. So I swiped up a big old handful of it, and we got the pliers out and squished it down. <laughs> you really got to work sometimes to get one little drop of sap out of some of those yeah. plants. But we dropped it on that refractometer, <laughs> and it was, and mine only goes to 30, right? Because I, I figured 30 bricks is the highest I'm ever going to see. That sucker was off the charts. Like, oh, wow. Yeah, it was above, it was that far above the top of the scale of my refractometer. Interesting. Yeah. So then we, and they, then we went back by there, not even 45 minutes later to take a couple salt blocks in. And they were gone off that hilltop and there wasn't, there wasn't a stem of clover on that hilltop inside the pasture. It was still at the ditch. It was on the other side of the hot wire, but there wasn't one stem of that stuff left mm-hmm. in there. Yep. Yeah, they they needed it or they wanted it. <laughs> you, know? I, you know, and this whole this this is we're kind of going down a little bit of a rabbit hole here on this. But I, I was just thinking as you were talking, part of what I've been um, kind of running over my head for the last you know 20 years since I've been living on this ranch is um, the importance of the generations teaching each other. You know, so like I'm um, incredibly focused on, you know, with our kids, like from pregnancy, birth, you know, breastfeeding, feeding, like what they're learning how to eat and what, you know, and this whole thing that um, Fred Provenza talks about, this nutritional wisdom, which literally starts in the womb. And um, I'm increasingly thinking when we're raising animals that we got to think about giving them opportunities to really learn from their parents. Mm -hmm. I mean, their mothers, especially really, um, how to forage and how to eat. And obviously cattle stay beef cattle, at least stay with their mothers for a good long time for the most part. Um, But I'm thinking, I think this is important for all the species that we're raising, you know, even poultry and, um, and this is so radical, it, you know, this kind of what I'm saying right now is so radically different than sort of mainstream agriculture. But um, I think we need to allow the animals to teach each other how to forage and mm-hmm. how to recognize the plants that they should be eating and so forth. And, um, you know, I'm often um, debating with my husband about whether this group of cattle should be back together with this group of cattle or whatever, because we have it all, you know, divided down by nutritional needs as we perceive them and so forth. And I keep thinking, like, I would like to see more intergenerational <laughs> education going on. That probably sounds kind of, um, people are thinking, oh, she's one of, one of those hippies from California when I'm talking about that stuff. But I actually think there's a lot more to that than we tend to want to think. And um, as someone who's, you know, um, trained in biology myself and having been around animals for my whole life, not not farming, but just farming for the last 20 years, but um I believe more and more in this idea that um, there's a lot happening in nature that we've been ignoring, you know, for mm-hmm. the last 50 years in agriculture. And I think having healthy animals, giving animals what they need to be healthy without us providing, you know, all kinds of, you know, supplements or drugs or chemicals, um, having them um, learn how to be be whatever species they are from the prior generation is probably a really good idea as difficult as that is 
from an agricultural standpoint, you know, making that happen. I mean, it's a big shift from the way most animals are being raised today, but I think, and I watch it all the time with our cattle, how much, uh, is it, how much communication is happening with the, you know, the mother cows and their calves. And wouldn't it be sensible to have that kind of um, system in all the species? That would be great. And, you know, I think there's something to that about passing down epigen, not just, you know, the epigenetic effects while that fetus is in utero about, you know, the nutritional information the mother's passing on. I think that was something else I learned from uh, Fred Provenza. Who yeah. We'll have to get Fred on the show, CK. Yes. Yes, you do. <laughs> He's amazing. Um, so, like, our experience here at the house with chickens, okay, We've got a couple chickens that we raised from chicks last year, and they're pretty good. We've got some chickens that we got from a neighbor that has a feedlot in his backyard, does a lot of preconditioning, and is pretty kind of on the conventional side, if you catch my drift. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of not the healthiest birds in the world. And then we've got some eggs that were saved from our chickens last year, fertilized by our rooster, so we got all these like weird, we have nine weird crossbreed chickens, like no clue what they are. Two of them are kind of Brahmas. There's two of them that are kind of Brahma influenced. There's a barred rock looking thing. And then the other ones, it's like, I, we don't know where that one came from. But we, I've noticed that the chickens that we hatched from last year's eggs, um, they they hustle a little harder. They work a little harder to try to go find forage. And they're... They don't eat maybe as much chicken feed as the big chickens even per pound. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I'm, I, I've read the meat racket a couple times, listened to it. Um, and he talks a lot about how Tyson chicken, I, you know, the, how Tyson took over the chicken industry and it was enabled by a very select set of genetics that did really mm-hmm. well and consistently on that kind of feed. And uh, there's something to be said about, you know, are we really, are we breeding animals that can only survive with a lot of artificial supports and, and right. subsidized energy? Or are we breeding animals that can be successful in the natural environment without a lot of supports? Yeah. And it's, it's it, we definitely see it in cattle too. Yeah. Well, and I, and I, um, I actually talked about this, this issue quite a bit in my first book, Righteous Workshop, because I was asking this whole question of how did we get to this very industrialized place in agriculture and especially in, you know, animal husbandry. And there's no question that there have been all these um, decisions made, you know, with pigs, for example, there was a very conscious choice to basically breed out the fat because it was considered something that wasn't very valuable and that at a certain point, in fact, when people stopped using lard that much in baking and cooking, um, it became to the point where the, the it was a waste product. I mean, the fat had at one point been quite valuable, and then it became less and less valuable. So the feeling was, well, when you're feeding pigs and they're just putting a bunch of fat on, that's very wasteful. That's, you know, quote unquote, inefficient. Right. But then what happens is the animal is not really capable of being outdoors. And so that's why there's been that huge interest in, you know, the resurgence and interest in the heritage breeds for pigs. And all of the Nyman Ranch farmers that I've, I've been on a lot of the um, farms of Nyman Ranch farmers who raise pigs, and all of them use something other than the modern white pig, you know, so they might use 
like you were saying, Brian, crosses and different things that are not um, necessarily, you know, one of the really well-known heritage breeds, or they might be using a heritage breed, but they all tell me that that fat that is missing in the modern pig is incredibly important, not just for the cold, but even for the heat. The animal is more capable of surviving any sort of fluctuations in temperature when it has some body fat on it. That might be a good lesson for all of us humans too. <laughs> Don't be so right. afraid to have a little bit of body fat on you, you know, probably has some valuable yeah. things for you. <laughs> but but um but that whole idea that um you know you're gonna have this um temperature controlled environment for these animals. They're gonna always be in one place. You know, they're not gonna they're not gonna waste quote unquote any calories by being allowed to move around, you yeah. know. I think a lot of these ideas just really need to be re re-examined. Um, just the fundamental notion of how we're, you know, what's appropriate when we're raising animals. And um, when we started raising turkeys, we we decided right away that we were going to do it with the old breeds because um, we, we knew we were going to have them outdoors. We wanted them to do a lot of foraging. And we also had talked to a lot of people who had raised turkeys and had been involved in the turkey industry. And they said that essentially the modern turkey is not really able to doesn't have the knowledge about how to escape from predators and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, and they can't even fly. So if they wanted to try to get up into a tree, for example, to avoid a predator, um, they wouldn't be able to do it. Literally, physically, they'd be incapable of doing it. So I think, you know, uh, these are the kinds of things that agriculture has been doing for a long, long time. They're, 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 they're big changes that happen. It's going to take a while to undo a lot of these things. But I think that we should be undoing these things because we need to have animals that can be healthy mm -hmm. um, just based on, you know, their their basic physiology and the, the natural environment that we're providing them rather than, um, you know, just creating a human constructed environment that gets an animal that doesn't get sick. And I mean, I think we're, we're seeing now, um, obviously the pandemic right now is, is, you know, there's debate about its origins, but it's probably from originally from bats and from the trade of wild bats. But there's been, all kind, there even right now there are scares going on all the time with different kinds of bird flu and swine flu. Yeah. Um, not just wiping out massive numbers of animals, but also even crossing over into human populations and even human to human transmission. And mm -hmm. when that every time those cases occur, most of them are in Asia. But when those happen, there's a kind of a panic within the whole public health community because they know there's a potential for a pandemic. Right you know, as there has been in the past with swine flu and so forth. So um, these are really important big picture issues. I think that humans need to be thinking about when we're talking about animals that we raise for food, because I think uh, the healthiest humans, I write about this in Defending Beef, the healthiest humans actually do live with animals and live alongside them. Um, you know, we've got we've gotten resistance to a lot of different types of illnesses by virtue of our proximity to living alongside yeah. animals, and and we know that asthma is much less uh, prevalent among children and then people that were reared on farms and just have access to even just having a pet helps you have a lower risk of asthma. But if you have um, far if you're just living on a farm or have Regular, regular, regularly spend time on a farm, you have a much lower risk of having food allergies or asthma. And those are sort of modern examples of how it benefits humans to be around animals. Yeah. So I think um, it's not that we don't want to have that um, proximity to them, but we shouldn't be having the animals live in such environments that is unhealthy for them or for us, potentially 
you know, that cross um, crossing into um, humans from the animal population. So, you know, people weren't thinking about that very much. I don't think a, a few decades ago when these systems were designed. Right. But I think now these things are more clear. And so I think these large scale, um, especially total confinement, you know, feedlots are one thing for cattle. I have, you know, concerns about those. But to me, a much greater concern is these total confinement systems for poultry and pigs because they're truly uh, breeding grounds for really virulent diseases, both for animals and humans. And I think that is something that we have to recognize and get away from. You know, once I started realizing how bad that total confinement model of chicken and and pork is, we sh- we shifted our buying habits. We quit buying those products at the store and made sure we were buying those from a regenerative producer. And I don't know what else to say other than you know it's the the conditions inside of one of those. You know, there, there's a reason that that Freedom to Farm Act was passed. So they could keep, you know, so they could lock cameras out of places like those. And yeah, as, as we like to say here on this show, shake the hand that feeds you. Encourage everybody to shake the hand that feeds you because when you're doing that, like if you have a personal relationship with the person that's growing your food, they're not going to grow you something or sell you something that is substandard quality or not grown with the love that it should have been. You know, when those pigs or chickens are overseen by a minimum wage slave working for Tyson or Smithfield. There's no integrity built into that, right? Yeah, yeah. There's, they don't care. They're just, there for, they're just there for a job. As long as they meet their quotas, they're not going to get fired. So how, how can we start dismantling the current system? It, actually, that's probably the wrong question. How I don't do we have think those conversations with, with people who don't understand what we know? Yeah, I mean we're we're not going to break we're not going to break up the Packers. We're not going to change the system. The only thing we can do is build a better one from the ground up that takes its place. So how do we start? How do we start having those conversations with the general public that doesn't know any better? Well, I think um, actually I think having a conversation within agriculture is incredibly important, and that is happening. And I'm I'm really heartened by that, to be honest. Um, 20 years ago when I started working on this, you know, the ideas that, you know, the mainstream meat industry was problematic, that was just kind of radical, <laughs> you know, in a lot of circles in agriculture and you were considered an animal rights activist if right. you were questioning the way modern meat was happening. And I think now 20 years on, the good news is that there's a lot of attention being paid to the fact that this is problematic and that it's, you know, not a good life for the animals, that it causes, you know, food safety concerns that it causes um, health, you know, like we're just talking about crossing to, you know, from um, animal to human disease concerns. So I think um, there's been a spotlight from a lot of different sources that have been focused on modern meat production. And I think that's good. So, and, and I think there are a lot of people within agriculture beginning to say, you know what, this is not, we want to move away from these kinds of systems. Um, I don't, you know, people in agriculture tend to be quite conservative, you know, so I don't hear a lot of people talking about like major one day to the next wholesale revolution. (laughs) But I do hear, you know, I was sitting next to Gabe Brown, you know, who to me is one of the most important sort of prophets for truly regenerative agriculture and really remaking agriculture. I was sitting next to him. We had um, just done a panel together. 
um, at the Acres Conference in Kentucky a couple years ago. And um, I, I was selling the original Defending Beef and I um, signed a couple books and I sold, I don't know, you know, a dozen books or whatever. And there was a line like 50 people long for Gabe Brown and his book. Because <laughs> people were like so interested in what he had to say. Now, the Acres Conference, of course, is already a place where people that are, you know, not practicing mainstream agriculture necessarily are going to be gathered. But still, there's a he's told me that he's been you know asked to speak all over the world and has done a lot of speaking all over the world because so many people want to know what he's done and how he's done it and so that to me is the kind of thing that suggests that there's a real interest within farming and ranching of doing something different and doing it better so i think that's really important second thing i think every human that eats which is all of us um we can take steps to feed ourselves in a better way and make sure that we're giving our bodies what they really need through our food and giving the children that we're feeding or whoever we're feeding better food by getting better food. And I like this shake the, shake the hand that feeds you kind of idea. That's, that's exactly how I also try to encourage people to, to shop and look for food and get out of the grocery store. I always say, you know, try to find stuff in your community try to find places where you can either directly purchase from the farmer, whether it's a farm stand or a farmer's market or whatever, or, you know, a sharing program, like a CSA type program, whatever. There are lots of ways to access food. And just think of um, gathering your food as kind of a foraging process where you get it from a lot of different places and you get it as directly as possible from the source. And it sounds overwhelming to do that if you're not someone who is already doing that. So I always tell people, just start one thing at a time, like get better eggs, you know, find a place where there's somebody raising pasture raised eggs in their backyard or wherever and start buying directly from them. And you'll begin to notice how much better those taste. And if you do any reading about it, you'll learn that there's far more vitamins and minerals in those eggs and a higher protein quality. Everything's better about those eggs. So then you're going to start feeling like it's worth it for the effort and the money. And then you're going to want to do more like that. So I think just one step at a time getting better food and to me um cooking more you know i think having um all of us i mean that was one of the upsides of the pandemic is people did slow down and did a lot more cooking and baking and i think it got a lot of people thinking a lot more about what they were eating and where it came from and you know how it was prepared um but we're also citizens. So I always think um, the other piece of that is for people to, whenever they have an opportunity, when they're interacting with, um, you know, their elected representatives on any level, whether it's a, you know, a, a city commissioner or a county commissioner or a congressperson or a senator, or whatever it is, to let them know that uh, you care about these issues. You know, you care about um, regenerative farming. You care about um high quality food and things that are not, you know, contaminated with, um, you know, for example, antibiotic residues or antibiotic resistant pathogens, you know, the European Union passed Mm -hmm. a law like 15 years ago saying you can't continuously feed antibiotics to animals in in livestock production, but the U.S. still allows that. And we've been, you know, the the Congress has taken up that law year after year and it's never passed. So that's the kind of thing that I think that we can, as citizens, tell our representatives we want to see. And that really helps level the playing field. That's what that law is all about. It says basically nobody's allowed to do this. So when you have the, the person that you're shaking their hand and getting your food from them, they're probably not doing that. But they're having to pay more to produce their meat because they're not doing that. And other people 
are essentially cheating. You know, I use that word in quotes because they're doing something that's legal, at least in the United States. But it's um, it's basically a, a crutch. You know, it's a, it's a way of um, kind of shortcutting the natural process that would normally lead to animal growth and animals being raised for meat, and trying to shorten the time between birth and slaughter weight. And that's um, giving them a competitive advantage that really they shouldn't have because that causes public health problems, that causes animal animal welfare and health problems, and ultimately it causes human health problems too. So if we get rid of those kinds of things, you know, that's, there are some places like laws that can do that kind of thing. And then we all, um, you know, just um, use our voices and our um, shopping dollars um, to support better systems. I think we can move pretty dramatically in a better direction. I mean, I think there's a big difference right now between where things were 20 years ago when I started working on this and where they are today. So I have, I'd like to see things move faster, you know, for sure. But I have a lot of optimism that things are going to be continue changing pretty dramatically in the next decade or so. You know, we're talking about you know, some of the drugs, the performance-enhancing drugs, you know, you know let, let's kind of lump growth hormones and mass antibiotic feeds, you know, kind of lump all that into one. And I don't have a lot of experience with that because that, that's never been my program or any part of the program on the ranch. Mm-hmm. But, you know, going – some of the visits I've done lately and some of the other cattle I've been around that, you know – have had growth hormones in them, man, that there, that can cause some behavioral issues that can mm-hmm. really mess up a, a steer's brain. Having a couple of those implants shoved in his ear, mm-hmm. you know, we got to think about what that's doing, you know, what that's doing to our meat. And, you know, the sad thing is if you go anywhere and question any of this stuff in our industry, like, you know, when a cow gets off, the, when a, when a steer gets off the truck at a feedlot, they get a shot of Batril 200 or a shot of Draxon before they ever hit a pin. Mm-hmm. Like, why are we doing that? Why are we doing these growth hormones? Why do we need these ionophores? If you question any of that stuff to another cattleman, you get looked at like you're crazy and told that you don't want to make money because that's how it has to be. And then the next thing out of their mouth is, well, that's safe. So science mm-hmm. says that it's safe. Well, science also says that glyphosate is safe. Mm-hmm. You know, science also says that uh, at one point it said DDT was okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you can't really have your cake and eat it too. You've either got to question a lot of stuff or you've got to accept everything blindly and go down that road. Yeah, because if you start uh, acknowledging, right, if you're if you're in kind of the mainstream system and you start questioning or acknowledging that there are some problems or some legitimate concerns, then all of a sudden everything you're doing is problematic because the whole system is so based on that. So I know, and then you have to go into a completely kind of alternative track, right? With what you're doing and where you're selling your meat and trying to get a premium for it and so forth. But I think, again, I believe there are some major um, shifts in thinking. My, My husband, Bill Nyman, who founded the Nyman Ranch Network always says that, you know, when he used to talk about antibiotic free, you know, when he started doing this, like 40 years ago, people thought he was, you know, again, kind of a hippie from California and they're nuts. And what do you, you know, that's all bullshit, you know, kind of thing. And it. now, uh, you know, everybody's talking about antibiotic free. I mean, that's a long time to make that kind of a shift. But, um, but I think there's just been a general movement away from the idea that everything's okay, because, you know, 
USDA says, or, you know, the, you know, land grant university says it's okay. Because I think more and more people realize that, you know, Monsanto and the big pharmaceutical companies are funding the research at those places and they're funding the chairmanships and the departments and not to criticize the, you know, the, the professors, I have met many of them who are very frustrated by the system and many of them who have taken a lot of risk to speak out against all of this, but essentially um, big corporations are funding universities now and in all oh, yeah. of it in agriculture and food, food science and health and nutrition. All the money, right? And yeah. yeah and you know, um, I, there's a lot that uh, Marian Nessel says that I don't fully agree with, but she does a really, really good job of highlighting the connections between um, the food industry, you know, and especially the processed food industry and all of the um, sort of educating and um, around diet and nutrition. So um, it's been super interesting to me to realize that probably the core problem that we have in health today, diet-related diseases and health problems, is related to processed food and how much processed food people are eating. And yet a mainstream dietitian will hardly ever point that out because their whole education has been funded by the processed food food industry. You know, and the profit is in the processing. So that's where the food industry is making their money. And so they've, and I'm not saying this is necessarily done intentionally on the part of nutrition trained people and dietitians, but they've never really been taught to question that whole notion that there's something necessarily problematic about processed foods. And yet to me, more and more I'm convinced and sort of going back to the Defending Beef book, the first book I talked about this issue, but in the second book, I talked about it a lot more because I've been, I think there's more and more really good science emerging showing that the key problem in the modern diet is how much processed food people are eating. And the key solution for an individual is to reduce how much processed food they're eating. So, you know, like I, I eat pasta. So, I mean, you know, I, I eat some processed food. It's not that I don't eat any, but I have, you know, just take, take, taking pasta as an example, I used to eat pasta sometimes like five nights a week, you know, (laughs) I don't do that anymore. You know, I'd much rather have a potato and I actually, we grow our own potato so I can take a potato out of the earth and eat it, you know, within a few hours of when it was harvested versus a box of pasta Mm -hmm which came from God knows where, you know, and I try to buy organic, just about everything, but still you don't know where it came from, when it was harvested, how much it was processed, who, you know, where it went and how long it took to get to you. And this is something, you know, you don't know anything about any of the provenance of anything you're eating when it comes from a grocery store, pretty much, and especially processed foods. And I just try more and more to eat, you know, like Fred Provenza says, using my nutritional wisdom, using real food that my body recognizes and knows what it needs. And that whole idea is something that you would never be taught, I don't think, in the vast majority of diet and nutrition programs in the United States today, because the processed food industry does not want anyone to believe that or, or to be, you know, espousing that approach. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a, there's a, we have a big um, problems with the way food and diet are, you know, talked about and are understood in this country. And there's a lot to do to fix it, yes. <laughs> but we shouldn't get discouraged because there is, there is more happening now, I think, than there has been in any time in recent history, partly yeah. just because there's, you know, we've kind of reached a critical point. I mean, there are so many people that have diet-related diseases, and there's so much evidence 
you know, about the long-term impacts of industrial agriculture on the land and on soil health. And, you know, we're obviously people are facing drought all we're, we're in a drought place right where I am. And it is and much of the much of the globe actually, and so I think we are kind of being forced to reexamine, like, okay, what are we doing? What's the impact we're doing, you know, of, of mainstream agriculture on the land, and how can we shift it so that we have a better effect on the land? And then in terms of health, you know, we have this, you know, really large number of people in the world and Western world especially uh, that are um, facing diet-related diseases. So what can we do, you know, to make food better and diets healthier? And so I think there's more um, interest in really reevaluating this than there has been in any time, probably ever. You know, there is a, a great book that came out in the last year called Metabolical. I, I forget who mm-hmm. wrote it, but uh, did you, have you read it? No, I think that was by Dr. Uh, Robert Lustig. I think that's his new book, yes, right? Yes, Pretty sure. Yes. And I it, saw it come out, and I put it on my to-read list, but I have not read it yet. Well, he likes to say that it's not the food, it's but what's been done to the food. He talks mm-hmm. a lot about processed food and some of the ingredients that are in heavily processed food yeah. and what's not there. And right. uh, let's see, he says that your eating choices should be uh, protect the liver and feed the gut. Mm. You know, very, very intentional choices to protect the liver. And he, there, there's a whole chapter. I think he talks about it for like an hour and a half about what you should not eat because it makes your liver toxic. Mm-hmm. One of the other key insights uh, that he also had on the in the book that you almost skipped over um, earlier is that animal fat is starting to be discovered to be critical to brain function. Yeah. Like like our brains are powered by animal fat. How how cool mm-hmm. is that? And you know, we had some conversation earlier specifically about pigs. That you know, they they bred this heritage, uh, they bred this crossbreed white pig that needed to live in a barn and get fed a ration and it did okay on it because mm-hmm. heritage breeds had too much fat be- and that was a waste product because there wasn't demand for lard. Right. We've started cooking with lard again and, you know, lots of real grass butter. You know, lard from grass-fed pigs is is actually pretty decent. You know, it's a good way to get, you know, get that type of nutrition, get uh, or get oil to fry something on. We eat a lot of fried food, but I think it's good for you if you fry it in lard or real butter. Absolutely. And also ghee. You know, I had never used ghee until uh, about a year ago or so, but I discovered it from uh, talking with Chris Kresser, uh, who is, you know, an amazing person in functional medicine and diet and health. And he explains the reason you want to use ghee is because it doesn't have the solids that butter have in it when you're at high temperatures. Right. Clear. So it's a great addition. I, you know, I use ghee, I use butter, I use um, pig fat, beef fat. I use <laughs> pretty much all the animal fats. I also use some coconut oil and some olive oil, you know, but that's pretty much it. I don't use really any other, um, I don't use canola oil or any of those other things that we're told are healthier alternatives. Cause I actually don't want to have my foods coming from industrial processes and industrial um, farms. And that's where I know all that canola oil comes from. And, you know, I, I've increasing, I actually did a really interesting panel. I was the moderator for a panel 
at the True Cost of American Food Conference a few years ago here in San Francisco, which was hosted by the Sustainable Food Trust. And I put together a group of people to talk about the fats issue, that very mm-hmm. question of where we get our fats and what it means. And and Patrick Holden, the founder of the Sustainable Food Trust, had come up with, had, had said something that I thought was so amazing. He said, um, we're getting the fat off of their land in the modern system. So we are going to Southeast Asia and we're destroying the, the um, we're creating plantations for palm oil and we're destroying the natural rainforest there in order to create right. palm oil because we don't want to eat the lard and the tallow and, and the schmaltz anymore. And it's so ridiculous because it's all because of this idea that, this, that those foods are unhealthy for you. <laughs> Which I know, which I think Nina Teichholz did a brilliant job of completely blasting in her book, The Big Fat, Big Fat Surprise, where she shows that essentially the whole science, you know, claiming that fat was bad for you is really suspect. And the conclusions that, you know, you should be avoiding it and you should be eating these supposedly healthier alternatives, there's really not good science for that whole idea. And yet we've pretty much all accepted that, we oh, Americans, yeah. you know. Without question. And, yeah. Fat is and, bad, and, and, carbs are okay. Pardon me? Fat is bad. Carbs are okay. Sugar's, yeah, exactly. sugar's not you know, horrible. I mean, and we now know that's completely false, too. So, <laughs> right. you know, I like I always like the picture of uh, the cover of um, Gary Taubes' book, Good Good Calories, Bad Calories, where he has a picture of the toast on the cover, and there's a big pat of butter. And your brain thinks, oh, right, that whole wheat slice of bread is a good calorie, and that butter is a bad calorie. <laughs> and the book totally flips it on its head and says, basically, no, the butter is the good calorie, the whole wheat bread is the bad calorie. Right. But, you know, I, I think there's just a lot that's being reexamined in so much of what we were kind of told was true in the last couple decades about dietary science and also about nutrition science. And and I actually added a whole big discussion on the new Defending Beef, um, just raising the question of how it's all conducted and how, how credible it is, because there is really good uh, discussion out there in, in some of the medical and science scientific literature saying that essentially almost all dietary science is not very good because it, the way it's way, the way it has to be conducted, it's really hard to do it, mm-hmm. you know, is like food frequency questionnaires, for example. And so you ask someone, what did you eat last week? And they're sitting there going, my God, I don't even remember what I ate yesterday, but here's what I think. And that's how they base these studies on a lot of times. And then they also do a lot of self-reporting and people are like, did I eat ice cream last night? Uh, no, no, I didn't. I, no, no, I, I didn't, I didn't have those three scoops. No, it's just not credible. You know, and there's, there's really good work that's been done in this now to show that um, the vast majority of this so-called dietary science is not very scientific. And so to me, more and more, I'm convinced that just kind of trying to think about uh, sort of going back to Fred Provenza again, what would our bodies tell us that we needed and what does our physiology demand? And to me, that's really closely connected to evolution. You know, what? how did we evolve? What were we eating as we evolved? Obviously, our modern foods are incredibly different than what we were, you know, would have had access to 10,000 years ago. But nonetheless, we can try to seek out foods that are similar to how, you know, we were always powered as humans in our evolutionary history. And animal foods were part of it for at least 3 million years, you know, and we, we now know that. And so to me, 
that tells you that that's an important part of it. And then, you know, some 80,000 other types of foods were involved in um, historically in foraging of people of the world over. So we know we ate very diverse diets and we know that we ate roots and seeds and nuts and plants and eggs and, you know, uh, leafy greens and we ate, you know, whatever we could get, basically. Humans, in my view, are absolutely clearly omnivores. And so diverse diets, but it's all stuff that comes directly you know, from the earth or the sea, you know, or the ground, you know, or the whatever, the tree, wherever. Uh, and, and, and that's where we get what our body needs is by getting that food from, from that place, you know, the earth or the, the, the tree or the water. And when we eat a processed food, that basically it's biologically dead food. And so to me, the cornerstone of sort of reclaiming a healthy diet is trying to get as much as possible into your diet every day that either you raised it yourself, it's from your own garden, it's from your own farm or ranch, it's from the the person down the street that has a farm stand or has a backyard chicken flock, whatever, and just try to get as much of that as possible into your daily diet. Shake the hand that feeds you. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> sure, even if it's your own. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so as we as we kind of head downhill to the last part of the show, there's two directions we could go. Okay, we can talk about economics of food production, or we can talk about climate change and carbon. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm up for either, but I do like talking about climate change. Well, let's do climate change and carbon. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right, let me uh, give me a second to dream up a question here. Um, so carbon storage is a thing, and, you know, we there's an emerging emerging carbon markets um and if you don't want to talk about like a specific carbon program uh, because of participation or 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 something else that's fine um Mm -hmm. but it seems like there's not much consistency um between some of them so like on a thirty thousand foot view what are what are some of the carbon programs that you're kind of familiar with and what are some of the pitfalls that we need to watch out for well, I mean, you know, my background as an environmental lawyer, there's been a lot of, you know, things I've been exposed to over the years where I've seen where they're trying to, you know, basically do cap and trade and all kinds of, you know, markets for carbon where you have essentially you're reimbursed for creating carbon you know, or getting carbon in the soil, for example, um, by someone else that's emitting carbon from, you know, the fossil fuel industry or whatever. And there's been some you know, funding that's gone from the fossil fuel industry into some of the um, the carbon soil programs in agriculture. And, you know, I'm kind of of, of two minds on that. On the one hand, I, I'm thrilled that there's resources that are being put into anything that incentivizes the return of carbon into the soil. On the other hand, I really think, first of all, the fossil fuel industry is in fact the gorilla in the room, the giant elephant in the room when you talk about climate change. It is really the key source. And there's a lot of discussion about, you know, especially like beef being a source of, you know, methane or whatever. But when you really look at the numbers, it's really clear that the fossil fuel industry is the primary driver of carbon, um, you know, emission, carbon dioxide emissions. And yes, that's because that's where it all comes from. I mean, without access to a cheap, energy dense, source that's that we can transport 
there's a lot of things that just don't simply work anymore in our economy. And that's that's kind of the scary part. Like, if they take this carbon tax all the way back to the wellhead, which is where it should be, mm-hmm. then everybody pays their fair share for consumption down the line. How bad is that going to affect, you know, the economics of food production? Well, that's a really interesting point, because the more dependent you are on fossil fuel production in your whatever you're doing, I mean, we know all agricultural chemicals are fossil fuel based, both in terms of their feedstocks and in terms of their processes to produce them. We know that um, more industrialized food production is much more um, dependent on machinery and automation. We know that there's a great deal more transport that happens with industrialized food production. So there are many steps along the way in the, you know, what I would think of as kind of the global or industrialized food system that would be dramatically affected by, you know, carbon taxing or whatever. Um, You know, I think ultimately I'm more interested in uh, helping and incentivizing people that want to move towards uh, systems that are going to sequester carbon. Because I feel that, I mean, it's, I, 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 I'm totally in favor of going after the, you know, fossil fuel industry for, you know, (laughs) in terms of um, making them pay their true costs, you know? Um, I, so, but what I don't like every time you start talking about taxing things, people immediately start talking about how, you know, farmers and you know especially people rearing cattle are going to have to pay a lot because there's um methane and so forth and all of those things tend to be really myopic in terms of even um how they're measuring what yeah. the, i mean especially when you're talking about cattle i talk about this a lot in the new defending beef book there's um there's a very very good um discussion in my book or i shouldn't say very good <laughs> i'd say my book is so great but there's a very in-depth let's put it that way it's yes. more neutral uh there's a very in-depth discussion in my book about methane from cattle and why it's completely misunderstood in terms of the way it's being talked about now because um in fact methane is a very short-lived gas and where you have um you know, we've always had ruminants on the globe, and there's a historic load of methane that has come from ruminants. And there's actually no evidence at all that we're increasing the amount of methane coming from ruminants on the globe. Mm-hmm. And there are, in fact, there are fewer ruminants on the globe today than there were historically. So I think it's not sensible to, you know, focus on the specific output of an, in, you know, of an individual farmer or rancher raising cattle because there's methane connected with that system. Um, when you really don't understand the whole biology of how methane breaks down and how methane is returned to the to the 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 ecosystem whereas when you extract you know whether it's natural gas or you know anything you're extracting in terms of the fossil fuel industry you are causing the emission of a lot of carbon that was actually deep in the ground prior to you doing that extraction and then the burning of it and so um, I think there's a very different question involved in, um, you know, whether you're talking about methane or carbon dioxide, whether you're talking about fossil fuel production and agriculture. Um, but for me, the really interesting idea is let's let's actually regulate 
and let's actually measure. I mean, I just recently learned that the methane that is emitted from natural gas production in Europe and in the U.S. Was not, is not being measured in any um, kind of organized way, and it is not being regulated. So um, I saw a, a, a report that was just published a couple of weeks ago that for the first time actually measured methane leaks in natural gas production in Europe, and it was a shockingly high amount. And they they pointed out in this report that no one was measuring it and no one was regulating it. And that's that's a kind of extraordinary thing when you think there's this all this focus on cattle. Look the other <laughs> way. Let's just look the and, other way. I mean, if you don't acknowledge the problem, you yeah. don't have to do anything about it. Yeah. Well, and there, you know the fossil fuel industry is incredibly politically powerful, so we oh, know this. Absolutely, and, right? and this is you know this is so this is why things don't get measured and they don't get regulated. And so you know I, I I'm I, I so when you talk about like taxing carbon or something for me it really depends on the situation. And a methane leak is a really outrageous thing because nobody benefits from that. That's not even good for the fossil fuel industry. The only reason they're allowed to continue is because it's expensive to cap them. But over the longer term, you know, it's probably better for them as well um, to, to preserve the methane, not to have the leaks. And there's no good that comes from it. You know, there's no energy generated or anything um, from those leaks. And we have a huge problem with methane leaks in the United States as well. So, um, you know, I, I I I would like from from my work what I what I'm interested in. Um, focusing on is how can individual um, farmers and ranchers um, improve what they're doing in terms of how much carbon they're getting into the soil, how much diversity and life they're building in their soils. And and I think there's a role for government in that. I think that there, there can be assistance, there can be incentives, there can be rewards for doing that. I'm a lot more interested in that kind of, um, you know, action by the government instead of taxation. I actually don't really want to see you know people in agriculture tax i mean there's already it's a hard enough profession as we all know yeah and I, right. I'm, I'm not against any more taxation don't get me wrong don't get me wrong <laughs> taxation is theft we don't need any more of it we need less and we need less government but how do we build a better food system without it yeah well i i think there are lots of i mean i actually am you know i i my good friend gabe brown um says we don't really need government he doesn't want to take any government subsidies for agriculture and we don't you know on our ranch we don't directly um take any government subsidies either but i actually do think um if the government would we're doing it in california for example there are um some laws now some programs that are going to be rewarding farmers for um showing that they're building carbon in their soils i think that's the kind of program that the government should be funding. And I think that will benefit um, all of us if we have that kind of program in place. So that's the kind of thing I think would be really, really helpful. But also most importantly, just help farmers to make a living and stop, you know, um, start leveling the playing field. Like I was saying before about the, you know, get rid of the, don't allow the antibiotics feeding to be used because that makes it unfair for people that are not doing that. That's the kind of stuff that, um, you know, there's a, a positive role that government can have, I think, and that will benefit all of us. Will benefit the, the the healthfulness of the food. Will benefit the ecosystems. Will benefit human health. You know, something else that I've learned about, and, and this is this is a little off track from where you were, but I'm, my brain works a little funny sometimes. It's about labels. Like the brighter, the flashier, the more attention grabbing the label is on that food, and the 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 more audacious claim that it makes about how nutritious it is, the less you should want to purchase that. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, I always like uh, Michael Pollan's, you know, statement that if it's not an ingredient that your grandmother would recognize, you probably shouldn't be eating that food. <laughs> you know, so if it's a carrot, if it's a, you know, if it's um, butter, um, that's fine. If it's, um, you know, some kind of weird soy protein isolate or something, <laughs> probably avoid it. I think that's a really great point. So that that is a great point. So if we uh, have we left anything on the table today, where can we find you on social media, and where uh, where can our fans find you if they want to interact with you a little more? Well, I, like I've been talking about, I've written books, um, Righteous Pork Chop and Defending Beef, which I certainly encourage people to read. Um, and they're at a lot of libraries. If your library doesn't have it and you don't want to buy it, just ask your library to get a copy of it. Um, and I have a, a very active social media presence. Also, Defending Beef is um, a Facebook handle and also a Twitter handle. So it's mm-hmm. just um, Defending Beef. And I I certainly encourage people to follow us because we do a lot of discussion there about all of the stuff we've been talking about today, whether it's, you know, um, how to improve the healthier soil or the healthier animals or produce better food or just eat better yourself. You know, all that stuff is stuff that we're talking about every day. So good places. Awesome. Awesome. Before we get on out of here, is there anything you'd like to ask me or CK? No, I just really appreciate the opportunity to have a conversation with you all. And, um, you know, it's our, our work is it's it's good work that we're all, you know, all of us are in this together. And I appreciate what you guys are doing. And thank you so much for inviting me to be part of the conversation. Well, we both really appreciate you being here. And it's been it's been a wonderful afternoon. And thank you for your time. OK, thank you. Thanks for sticking around to the end, friends. I need to ask you for a couple favors before you go. The first thing, and this really helps more than you'd think, I need you all to go to the Apple Store or your podcast player and leave us a review. Your feedback really matters. The second thing is I need you to share your favorite episode with five of your friends and family. Make sure you come back next week. I'm letting CK take over. Have a great week, gang.